Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Happiness in life for Schopenhauer is not a matter of joys and pleasures, but rather the reduction and freedom from pain as much as possible. He wrote, Alternatively, engaging in arts and philosophy in Schopenhauer's mind served as another more accessible method. He felt that good art could provide a source of clarity into the nature and problems of being without any of the illusion or drapery. And while engaging in this sort of art, one would have a transcendent-like experience that provides a relief and comfort from existence. As a result of this concept, Schopenhauer would end up being one of the first thinkers to ever really introduce philosophical significance to the arts, and would eventually become known by many as the artist's philosopher. And those were thoughts from the writings of German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer whose brooding reflections continue to resonate today and which we'll explore on this show with an excursion through his work and influences in our Arts Express screening room. Was he influenced, as the 19th century thinkers of his time, like Marx, though quite the opposite, affected by the new catastrophic implosion of industrialization of a socially and economically traumatized Europe, or simply a grouch? Stay tuned to find out more. But first, Sheila McCarthy, who joins us on the show, has been in a number of movies, including The Day After Tomorrow and Die Hard 2, and this year's Women Talking. But the Canadian actress is perhaps best known for one of her first movies and her breakout role in this film. Uh, Testing, one, two, three. Hello? My name is Polly Vandersma, and I'm a Girl Friday. Well, actually, I became a person Friday a couple years ago. I didn't change the job very much. Anyways, my new boss was a curator. Bonjour. Bonjour. Oh, she loved to talk about art things, and like, like whose work shows talent, and whose doesn't, and um, whose work shows Acute awareness, like, at first I thought she meant like a cute face. Acute awareness. It's an external transformation. Internal. External, look at the lemon. What about the fork? Oh, the fork is irrelevant. I could never really, I could never really talk to them about all the things I think about sometimes. And all the things I've seen. Sometimes I think my head is like a, a gas tank. You have to be really careful what you put into it, because it might just affect the whole system. I mean, isn't life the strangest thing you've ever seen? And Sheila McCarthy joins us to talk about the enduring impact of Patricia Rossima's I Heard the Mermaid Singing and in her own life, and her current starring role in Women Talking, as the women of an isolated rural community engage in distressed dialogue about the dangerous, violent men of their community and whether they should fight back or flee. There's a lot going on in this tense drama, including the notion of politically charged conversation and how women talk to one another when men aren't around and what McCarthy had to say when I presented one question to her that she said she's never been asked. 
First, some scenes from Women Talking, then Sheila McCarthy. Do nothing. Stay and fight. Leave. talk about our bodies. We were given two days to forgive the attackers before they returned. We hardly knew how to read or to write, but that day, we learned how to vote. Do nothing. Stay and fight. Leave. If we do not forgive these men, we forfeit our place in heaven. Surely there must be something worth living for in this life, not only the next. We know that we've not imagined these attacks. We know that we are bruised and infected and pregnant and some of us are dead. We cannot forgive because we are forced to. Who are you? Who are any of you? pretend I have had a choice. We know that we must protect our children. I will become a murderer if I stay. We are not all murderers. Not yet. Men have taught the lesson of power to the boys, and they have been excellent students. But they are children, and they can be taught. Have we made a decision? Our choice will be your future. Hi, Terry. Hi. Hello, Sheila McCarthy, and welcome to our show. Thank you. Okay. What was it about women talking and this story that inspired you to become part of this production? Uh, I would say my initial um, inspiration was the opportunity to work with Sarah Pauly, who, as a fellow Canadian, you know, I've been very familiar with for years and years. I played her mother in a movie, and I was in her series, uh, the series Avonlea, with her. Um, and I've always been inspired by her choices and her um, just ability just as an artist, like I just the idea of being able to work with her as a director to actor was, um, you know, an impossible uh, thing to to ever ever even think about um, not doing. So, and we we zoomed together initially, and um, that sealed the deal for me. And what can you say about portraying Greta, figuring her mm -hmm. out and getting inside her head? Well, you know, uh, I had read the book. When it first came out with the book club, and it, you know, it's a very dense, complicated book, and I was, you know, I, I never for a moment thought, well, this would be a movie. That wasn't where my mind went. All the characters seemed so rich and and different, but I thought, wow, this is just, you know, women talking. <laughs> what kind of film would this be? But what I really loved about Greta was her sort of gentle, um, persuasive humor her wry wit and her, um, you know, I, I love characters that are are allowed to be, you know, use their wit to um, to get what they want. And I think, you know, Greta being one of the sage elders of the of the colony, um, you know, it was just used to great advantage in the film. And I I, I love the idea of really um, harnessing listening in a film. And being, you know, being part of such an incredible group of of um, women deciding their fates, and Greta just seemed a really um, wonderful puzzle piece amongst all that. And how would you say this concept of women talking 
contrast with, say, men talking? <laughs> <laughs> contrast? Well, you know, it's funny. We, my husband and I joke. We said we, men talking would be the game of beyond. <laughs> and they'd be sawing something. Um, you know, oh, my God, that's a really difficult question. Uh, I don't mean to make light of it but because I know some incredibly serious men who love to talk. <laughs> um, but... Um, I think I think the difference in this is that these women who have had no voice their entire lives are finally allowed a voice. First of all, to vote for the very first time in their lives, which I always find an incredibly moving thing to do um, myself. And and then moving further into that, that, that their conversation is so eloquent and so... Um, so, so much part of the faith story, um, you know, people have asked, how could these women talk so intelligently when they're illiterate? And I thought, no, it's a different kind of illiteracy. Um, but uh, I, I think that, um, yeah, I, I would think that men could share in a conversation like this, absolutely, for sure. If, if they had stakes like this of, of do or die, I think perhaps the only difference is that and maybe this is inbred in the culture of these particular women is an incredible patience to hear to listen to take their time even though there is only 48 hours to make this you know are we leaving or are we staying decision um that that perhaps is a female (laughs) might be a female trait now there's also the dynamic we see here of women talking differently when men aren't around. What are your thoughts about mm-hmm. that, whether in this film oh. or or in your life in the real world? Oh, oh, it, it's so true, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> my sisters were over yesterday and we were sitting around, and it's, every time my husband walked through the room, <laughs> the conversation changed. Yeah, it just like it's a different, it's a different tone and topic altogether. Not that we're talking about them necessarily. It's just it is. Um, I mean, that's the reason when when you're at dinner parties, often it's the women end up at one end and the men end up at the other. Mm-hmm. You know, we are just different beings when it comes to that. Um, so, uh, and that's you know, it's not. I'm not being critical of that. It's just a diff- It's just a different conversation. I guess there's just a wavelength that we understand about each other that um, perhaps men don't. <laughs> yeah. And what are your thoughts about what transpires in the film and relates to society out there in the present time? Well, you know, we've been asked that a lot. I mean, the, in the current situation in Roe versus Wade and, you know, the abortion debate that you're having, um, this movie is just really representative of... of um, I guess the dream and the possibility and the hope of what can happen when women begin a conversation. Um, and I, 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 I use the word hope um, with, with a lot of importance. I think that that's the takeaway from this film and that the despair around us all is, you know, it's, it's, it's a real thing. And, and so a film like this shows, you know, women in incredibly dire situations with really, you know, um, no voice in the beginning, um, have a voice by the end. And I, I, I just hope that people cherish, cherish that part of the film and, and take that. And I, I also, you know, just in terms of individual people, not just the big, you know, um, political landscapes, but for people who have had trauma in their lives and have had um, not, not just women, but men, women, you know, all, all genders, who have experienced sexual abuse and verbal abuse and emotional abuse, um, that they are not alone. And I think that 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 is really highlighted in our film, um, that once one person talks to another person, the landscape can change and that that we can move forward. And I know that sounds really simplistic, but I I do think that that takeaway of, of... that we are not alone is a really important one. And what are your thoughts looking back or watching, looking back on or watching your acclaimed and enduring film, I've Heard the Mermaid Singing? 
Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, that, you know, um, I am just staggered that that movie still resonates with people. And oh, yeah. They recolored it, remastered it. It was at um, the Toronto Film Festival. Um, and, you know, I watched it, you know, with a, a different guy. And I thought it still holds up, you know, the, the themes and the, the, um, the, the texture of that film. Um, are still relevant today, and I really applaud Patricia Rosema, who, who wrote and created that, and and um, had a really good sense to cast me in that part. I, mm-hmm. I really fought for that, and and really, um, it was it was a game changer for me. I really I come from musical theater and then theater, and and it really had not been on sets very much. So you know, I look back on that and say, wow, I was so young. And was so tired making that movie because we were up all night shooting. You know, it was eighteen day shoot, made for two hundred thousand dollars. It was really, I never thought anybody would see that film. You know, I really thought this is just, you know, kind of out there. And um, <laughs> I am um, just, it, you know, it, it went around the world and it's still going around the world. And people of a certain age still remember that. And and I, I it's probably you know one of the greatest parts of it I could ever play. And and I. Loved Polly. I missed her when I finished it. So, you know, women talking, you know, 30 years later is doing the same thing. And, you know, in a, I've been, you know, in this career for a long time, you know, reinventing myself every five years. And, and you know, uh, it's just now I just love it. You know, I mean, I just think this is so much fun to have to be in something that's being recognized for something that's really um, important to like, I really think um, Patricia with Mermaids and also Sarah with Women Talking. Um, you know, these are these are pieces of art that I think um, have had some real importance on the, you know, in the movie world. And how would you compare and contrast your female characters, Polly and Greta, in these two films oh. as women each struggling for identity yeah. and their place in the world? Uh, that's a great Great question. I've never been asked that. Um, you know, when I'm approaching a character, I always like to I like to investigate what they're not good at. You know, being both characters such underdogs um, in in their worlds, and what you know, what are they going to do to it to to be heard? And both of them fight, and both of them are pretty scrappy. Um, you know, I think. You know, uh, Polly really fights for her art to be seen and to be heard, and she's and she defends, you know, her her curator to the end. And I think for Greta too, Greta's struggle is is recognizing what her enable her enabling has done to her two daughters over the years, and recognizing that it needs to change, and that heartbreak is her challenge of, first of all, apologizing and recognizing that her voice needs to be louder. And I think for Polly and for Greta, both of them realize through their journeys that voices need to be louder and it's okay, Mm. you know? And speaking about women talking, what can you say about collaborating with your daughter, Mackenzie, on Little Black Dress, in which you star as well? Oh, well, I'm, I'm so proud of her. I, you know, I really, um, we, we conceived, I conceived of that idea, and then she took it a little bit further and directed me in it. And it was, um, you know, sort of a low-budget short film. And I was just, saw her with fresh eyes. I thought, wow. She'd been produced, she'd produced Orphan Black first, and then, um, uh, oh, what's the train that goes around the world movie? Snowpiercer. She produced Snowpiercer, but she really... I think she's a director. Mm-hmm. And um, we also just completed, uh, right before uh, Women Talking um, premiered, We I, I did a film with her called Civil um, that she directed and and wrote and directed. Um, so I'm very proud of her. And that was a big, big feature, apocalyptic, end of the world film. Um, and, and she really impressed me. <laughs> it was really fun being honest. People didn't know we were mother and daughter until one day she went, Mom! <laughs> and, and she went, I mean, Sheila. And people went, what? Is that your mother? <laughs> so it was just, it, you know, when you see your children 
um, and you get and you know doing what they dream of doing. It's it's way better than anything I could ever do. And in, and you know I got to see her every day, which you know when your daughter's in her thirties and has her own life, you don't get to do that very mm. often. <laughs> I yeah. got to be with her every day, which was really fabulous. So I'm very proud of her. And and you know I keep saying to her, well you have to you know hire me <laughs> for hire. <laughs> And what led you to and inspired your first venture in directing Russet Season, described as an offbeat apple that could change the life of a young woman stuck <laughs> in a relationship with the wrong man? Well, it, it again, with a short film, I've been directing a lot of theater and a lot of musical theater, um, um, you know, for, for the stage. But Russet Season was my first foray into uh, directing film. And I thought, well... I've done a lot of it, and as long as I have a really good cameraman beside me, I can just fake it till I make it. And I thought, uh-huh. this is good. I can cut my teeth on something short. And I, um, the, 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 the female actress playing the, the lead part was somebody I had taught, and, um, and it was just a love affair between us. So, uh, and the script was wonderful, and, uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was just a real love project, and it was just great. Um, I learned a lot. And, you know, I hope to do it again. Um, and, you know, we went around to the festivals and all the short film festivals and, and did quite well. So that was, uh, yeah, I just, you know, listened to my cameraman and said, mm-hmm, okay, we could do that. And, you know, it's all the prep work beforehand um, that is fun. So we'll see if I do more. <laughs> <laughs> and any last word about women talking? And what you hope it conveys to female audiences and to male audiences. You know, we we first went to Telluride with this film in, in September, and um, it was we had no idea the reaction that it was going to have, and there were people coming up to us in the street crying and mm-hmm. unable to talk after seeing the movie, and 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 what I found really interesting was couples, married couples coming, and the, the husband would start talking, and the wife would go, no, no, no. No, no, you are you're not talking right now. I've I've got something to say. <laughs> and and families having you know dinner conversations after the film, um, you know the the fact that this film called Women Talking is creating a conversation um, of of the people who see it is really all you could ask for. And um, and differing opinions and that's great. You know that's what you know you can't ask for more than that. So. I mean, my hope is that it, it just, you know, that it's um, it's receiving a lot of wonderful attention right now, and I hope that that just means more people will see it and and uh, you know spread the word because it's um, I'm I'm very proud to have been part of it, and um, you know it's it's really it's 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 a game changer in movie making because of the nature of it, you know, it's not Top Gun. <laughs> it's, it's it's a chamber piece, and I think that it requires patience. And in this world of no attention span and people just you know going a mile a minute, it requires a certain attention. You know, put away your phones and sit mm. for two hours, and it's getting. And people seem to be um, getting it. So that's that's you couldn't ask for more than that. Okay, thank you so much, Sheila McCarthy, for calling into our show. Thank you so much, Prairie. I really enjoyed it. Great question. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. And Women Talking is out now in release. Hello, Arts Express. This is Adam Beach giving you a shout-out. And I'm very much tied into my cultural identity and protecting that. 
And I find when you look at the non-Indigenous, when they get involved in the traditional aspect of things, they usually steal it for a monetary value, whether it's artifacts, whether it's ceremony lodges, sweat lodges, or taking their own interpretation of what a Navajo song should be and, you know, how they should dress and, yeah, protects that. Coming up next in the Arts Express screening room, the darkest philosopher in history, Arthur Schopenhauer. Being one of the first philosophers to ever really question the value of existence, to systematically combine Eastern and Western modes of thinking, and to introduce the arts as a serious philosophical focus, Arthur Schopenhauer is perhaps one of the darkest and most comprehensive philosophers in Western history. Schopenhauer was born in 1788 in what is now Gdańsk, Poland, but spent the majority of his childhood in Hamburg, Germany, after his family moved there when he was five. He was born to a wealthy family, his father being a highly successful international merchant. As a result of this, young Schopenhauer would be expected to follow in his father's footsteps. However, from an early age, he had no interest in business and instead found himself compelled towards academics and after going on a trip around Europe with his parents to prepare him for his merchant career, the greater exposure he would receive to the pervasive suffering and poverty of the world would cause him to become all the more interested in pursuing the path of scholarship and intellectually examining, down to its very core, how the world worked and why, or perhaps more accurately, how and why it appeared to work so negatively. After eventually going against his family's ready-made path of international business, Schopenhauer would attend the University of Göttingen in 1809, where, in his third semester, he would become more introduced and focused on philosophy. The following year, he would transfer to the University of Berlin to study under a better philosophy program led by distinguished philosophy lecturers of the time. However, Schopenhauer would soon find academic philosophy to be unnecessarily obscure, detached from real concerns of life, and often tethered to theological agendas all of which he despised. Eventually, he left the academic intellectual circuit and spent the following decade philosophizing and writing on his own. By age 30, Schopenhauer had published the two works that would go on to define his entire career, contain his complete, unified philosophical system from which he would never deviate, and eventually influence the entire course of Western thinking with. The first groundwork of his philosophy was established in his dissertation on the fourfold root of the principle of sufficient reason, published in 1813, and his entire unified philosophical system, including his metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, aesthetics, value judgments, and so forth, was laid out in his subsequent masterwork, The World as Will and Representation, published in 1819. Despite these impressive works going on to hold major stake in Western philosophy, influencing some of the greatest thinkers and schools of thought thereafter, during this time, they would go mostly unnoticed. Over the decades following his early work, throughout his 30s and 40s, Schopenhauer would spend his time working to be a lecturer at university, as well as a translator of French to English prose, while continuing to write on and off along the side. He found very little success in all of it. His lectures were unpopular, his translations received very little interest, and his philosophical work remained mostly overlooked. 
Only by around his 50s did Schopenhauer finally start to receive any notable recognition at all, and only after publishing a book of essays and aphorisms in 1851 would he achieve the status of fame, which he would remain in for the rest of his life until he died in 1860 at the age of 72. In terms of Schopenhauer's philosophical system established within his work, it is relevant to note that it leaned heavily on the work of his predecessor, Immanuel Kant. In Schopenhauer's mind, he was completing Kant's system of transcendental idealism. Building off his interpretation of Kant, Schopenhauer essentially suggested that the world as we know and experience it is exclusively a representation created by our mind through our senses and forms of cognition. Consequently, we cannot access the true nature of external objects outside our mental, phenomenological experience of them. Deviating from Kant, however, Schopenhauer would go on to argue that not only can we not know nor access the varying objects of the world as they really are outside of our conscious experience, but there is in fact no plurality of objects beyond our experience at all. Rather, beyond our experience is, according to Schopenhauer, a singular, unified oneness of reality, a sort of essence or force that drives existence that is beyond time, beyond space, and beyond all objectification. Schopenhauer would go on to explore and define this force by referencing and probing into the experience of living within the body, suggesting that this is the only thing in the world that we have access to that is not solely a mental representation of an object, but is also a first-hand, subjective experience from within it. From here, Schopenhauer would suggest that what is found from within, at the core of our being, is an unconscious, restless, striving force towards survival, nourishment, and reproduction. He would term this force the will to live. Essentially, this would lead him to the conclusion that reality is made up of two sides, one side being the plurality of things as they are represented to a conscious apparatus, and the other side being the singular, unified force of the will hence the name of his masterwork, The World as Will and Representation. It is worth noting that the term will can perhaps be misleading and that it might seem to imply an intention or human-like conscious motivation, but the will, for Schopenhauer, is a blind, unconscious striving with no goal or purpose other than to keep itself going for the sake of keeping itself going. All of the material world operates by and through this will, moving, striving, consuming, and violently expressing itself in order to sustain itself. Schopenhauer's work was largely a response to Kant and the Western philosophical tradition, but his work also contains distinct notes of Hinduism and Buddhism. His conclusion of the nature of reality is strikingly similar to that of both and his qualitative assessment of reality's negative relationship with the conscious self mirrors ideas central to Buddhism. This made Schopenhauer one of the first philosophers to ever really combine Eastern and Western thinking in such a systematically comprehensive way. Especially similar to Buddhism, Schopenhauer would top off his philosophical medley with a layer of dark, unwavering pessimism. Unless suffering is the direct and immediate object of life, our existence must entirely fail of its aim. It is absurd to look upon the enormous amount of pain that abounds everywhere in the world and originates in needs and necessities inseparable from life itself as serving no purpose at all and the result of mere chance. Each separate misfortune, as it comes, seems no doubt to be something exceptional, but misfortune in general is the rule," Schopenhauer wrote. As a qualitative assessment of the nature of reality, he would describe the will to live as a sort of malevolent force that we, as individual selves, become victims of in its process of continuation, deceived by our own mind and body to go against our fundamental interests and yearnings in order to carry it out. Since the will has no aim or purpose other than its perpetual continuation, then the will can never be satisfied, and since we are expressions of it, neither can we. Thus, we are driven to consume beings, things, ideas, goals, circumstances, and all the rest, constantly hoping we will feel a satisfaction or happiness as a result, while constantly being left in the wake of each achievement unsatisfied. Human life must be some kind of mistake. The truth of this will be sufficiently obvious if we only remember that man is a compound of needs and necessities hard to satisfy, and that even when they are satisfied, all he obtains is a state of painlessness where nothing remains to him but abandonment to boredom, Schopenhauer wrote.
as the best possible ways of sort of escaping and dealing with this, Schopenhauer would put forth two primary methods. One, engaging in arts and philosophy, and two, the practicing of asceticism, traditionally being the deprivation of nearly all desire, self-indulgence, and everything past the bare minimum. In this latter method, Schopenhauer felt that by denying the will from being fed, so to speak, one would turn the will against itself and overcome it. However, he also recognized the sheer difficulty of this for the majority of people and suggested the average person should simply make their best efforts towards letting go of ideals of happiness and pleasure and rather focus on the minimization of pain. Happiness in life for Schopenhauer is not a matter of joys and pleasures, but rather the reduction and freedom from pain as much as possible. The safest way of not being very miserable is to not expect to be very happy. He wrote, Alternatively, engaging in arts and philosophy in Schopenhauer's mind served as another, more accessible method. He felt that good art could provide a source of clarity into the nature and problems of being without any of the illusion or drapery. And while engaging in this sort of art, one would have a transcendent-like experience that provides a relief and comfort from existence. As a result of this concept, Schopenhauer would end up being one of the first thinkers to ever really introduce philosophical significance to the arts, and would eventually become known by many as the artist's philosopher. Of course, throughout his work in general, Schopenhauer makes large, often unprovable, and unknowable claims about the nature of reality and the value of existing within it some of which is validly constructed and worth considering, but some of which is likely not. Ultimately, any attempt to define and assess the side of reality beyond logic and reason through systematic logic and reason is perhaps paradoxical in a way that is beyond repair. What precisely is the will? Where does it come from? Where does it end? And how can we know or prove it? And in terms of Schopenhauer's suggestion that one should turn against the will through an ascetic process of self-denial, if all of life operates through the will, to turn against it would seem to merely be the will turning against the will for reasons that favor it. And there can be no turning against the will if the will is doing the turning. Alternatively, considering the view of Friedrich Nietzsche, a philosopher who notably followed in Schopenhauer's footsteps, the endless cycle of desire and dissatisfaction caused by the will is actually a good thing that we can use as fuel towards the process of self-overcoming and growth which we can then obtain life's meaning from. Of course, this is the more pleasant of the two interpretations, but it isn't clear which is more apt and or accurate, if either. Ultimately, Schopenhauer is another surprising yet seemingly common story where a highly important thinker, artist, or writer barely caught any recognition in their life, if at all, only to die and end up with their name in nearly every history book on the subject. One trait these stories do all seem to have in common, though, is a refusal to stop, a refusal to budge from pursuing and defending the world as one sees it. Schopenhauer never deviated from the philosophical system he created in his 20s and never stopped confidently working to build upon it and reinforce it throughout his life, despite the world seeming to suggest to him he should do otherwise. And yet, now it is hugely significant to the world that he did exactly what he did. For some, his work might be bleak and disconcerting, but for others, his work, like all great works of dark, melancholic honesty, is comforting, relieving, and legitimizing. It reminds us that we are not crazy, and our sadness and suffering are not unfounded, even when they may feel like it. We are merely put in a crazy, sad, violent reality with the mind and body that are often all in conspiracy against us. Because of this and many other reasons unmentioned, his work would go on to influence artists like Richard Wagner and Gustav Mahler, writers like Marcel Proust, Leo Tolstoy, and Samuel Beckett, and thinkers like Friedrich Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud, and Ludwig Wittgenstein, as well as many others, ultimately influencing the course of modern thinking forever. Having been one of the first to properly and philosophically bring the value of life and the possibility of meaning into question, Schopenhauer helped locate the early budding problem of the growing agnostic world that philosophy would need to address. With humanity seemingly suspending further out into a void of meaning, his unyielding and fearless confrontation with the nature of existence, including all its horrors and miseries, revealed an opening of new possibilities towards finding answers from within.
and thank you, Pursuit of Wonder, which is our best of the net hotspot this week. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Global Television Beat, taking a look at past and present disasters and future trends. The business of streaming this past year, where the whole thing nearly collapsed. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Business of Streaming 2022, the one where the whole thing nearly collapsed. If the buzzword for corporate streaming in 2021 with life still centered online as COVID lingered was expansion, the key phrase in 2022 with nuclear war looming, inflation and rising interest rates deflating salaries and climate destruction worsening was retrenchment. The turnaround of what was once part of one of the last of the still thriving sectors of capitalist enterprise was so fast and so wide ranging that in March, Netflix's rising subscription rates were still the toast of Wall Street. But by April, a one-quarter decline brought on a 35% loss of valuation as the company shed $50 billion in one day. The tech industry as a whole and the entertainment industry is now a branch of that sector after the mass movement to online streaming during COVID suffered huge losses, with the most stark of these being the crypto company FTX, which went in days from a valuation of $32 billion to bankruptcy and which was described in court documents by creditors trying to reclaim their money as a Ponzi scheme, with $8 billion accidentally missing from the books. The 30-year-old owner, who at one point talked about buying Goldman Sachs, also contributed $1.5 million to the U.S. war in Ukraine, as well as bankrolling to the tune of $70 million, both Democratic and Republican candidates in the November election, and in that way, spreading the fictitious wealth around. The big three streaming companies, Disney+, Plus, Netflix, and HBO, have all sustained losses in both subscribers and market valuation over the last year, to the point where Wall Street has now made a shift and no longer values simple gain in subscribers, but instead is looking at the actual worth of these companies. That is, are they actually profitable? The answer to that is, of course, no. They are hugely in debt, and none of the streamers have as yet turned a profit. That is, they are part of the debt-driven, inflated U.S. economy as a whole, which is entirely dependent on the promise of the future and the willingness of investors to believe in that promise, all of which the social philosopher and political economist Karl Marx termed fictitious capital, knowing that these enterprises create no real worth or value for society. That's not entirely the case here, since each is in the entertainment business, which does create potentially socially useful products, in this case, serial series. The problem is the use value of these products, that is their potential to improve the lives of those who consume them, is always tempered, mitigated, and often corrupted by their exchange value, that is how many people they reach and new subscribers they appeal to and how that boosts the market value of the company. At the beginning of the streaming era in the 2000s, a high price was put on quality TV as showrunners carved out a place for more sophisticated, intelligent, or complex TV, which replaced the morass of cheap-to-make reality TV. But as the bigger players entered the arena, they have brought with them an increased emphasis on the profit motive of the streaming company, which has resulted in a reversion to past media formulas. Thus, we have new kinds of homogenization, where many of the shows which viewers often find unwatchable are simply designed to appeal to a faceless middle class where crass consumerist values dominate. Just as in the television network era of old, but which is also still with us, when one series or genre happens to resound with some sector of the public, the streamers then rush to follow that trend and create their own version. With the success of Netflix's Emily in Paris, a high-end fantasy view through the eyes of a young female American associated with the fashion industry, of a Paris that looks nothing like that of the city today, but which appeals to viewers' dreams of the city, the second season of HBO Max's The Flight Attendant, seeking the same demographic, became even less than season one of a narrative and instead was a globe-hopping travelogue of its female heroine fashion hotspots in the U.S. and Europe. This is especially true of the fantasy genre, where each streamer has allocated more and more money to have its own in-house mega-production following the success of HBO's Game of Thrones. HBO has its sequel, prequel, Throne of the Dragon. Disney Plus has its Star Wars franchise and the George Lucas fantasy version of that myth, Willow. Netflix, its medieval Witcher and superpowered Sandman produced by Warner Television. And Amazon, its Lord of the Rings prequel and origin story, The Rings of Power. As the mutations proliferate, the originality of each series declines. The streaming backlash began in April after Netflix subscribers declined by 200,000 for the first time ever 
in its 2022 first quarter report. The company lost 25% of its worth. In reaction, as is happening in all quarters of the tech industry, the company laid off 300 workers and eventually 3% of its workforce. In addition, the streamer instituted advertising into a model where the company had boasted it would never do that and began canceling series it would usually renew, such as Glow and She's Gotta Have It. Mouse in the House. The Disney Plus shakeup, after the company reported $1.5 billion in losses from streaming in November, involved replacing the Disney head Bob Chapek with its former head Bob Iger and a supposed return to a more creative-friendly environment. Chapek had attempted to install a more vicious cost-cutting regime throughout the Magic Kingdom, where even its once-profitable theme park customers were complaining of nickel and diming. Probably the grandest fiasco, though, was Warner Brothers, where AT&T, once it had bought the company, installed its own head, John Stanky, as head of the entertainment complex. Stanky was a no-nonsense leader who proposed to take the company global by producing quantity, not quality, with a tilt toward more inexpensive game shows and reality TV. He simply wanted more hours of entertainment, which meant that HBO Max would dilute the HBO programming. The response of the HBO head, Richard Pepler, who then left the company was, more is not better, better is better. AT&T botched the job so badly with its bottom-line, uninspired programming that it had to spin Warners off and eventually merge it with the Disney Channel, though the conservative Texas company still controls 71% of the stock. The Discovery Channel leader, David Zasloff, though, who formerly operated under media baron John Malone, was appointed not because he would add quality to the HBO Max stable, but because he too knew how to trim a budget. And that is what he has done. He immediately canceled the CNN streaming platform CNN Plus, the $90 million nearly finished film Batgirl, and did not renew the HBO series Westworld. He also tried to cancel the Warner Brothers screenwriting program, which selects and trains new writers, that is, the entertainment complex's future. But the outcry was so great that he had to rescind that decision. These actions, of course, have consequences beyond the insular world of streaming. Warner's is being sued for exaggerating its subscribers by, among others, Ohio pension funds, a stable of many teachers who claim the funds have lost $25 million on the company's inept shenanigans. What is responsible for these losses? There are several factors limiting subscriptions, but three figure prominently in the global macro picture since the streaming pool in the U.S. is saturated and the company's need for an expansion to show profit. The same factors also limit expansion in the U.S., where at present, an average household has an unsustainable four streaming subscriptions a month, plus cable. The first factor is global warming, with summer 2022 being the hottest on record for Europe and China, approximately 25% of the global population. Well, in addition, because of global warming, ordinary weather catastrophes, droughts, fires, floods, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, and volcanoes have increased in magnitude. Needless to say, in the aftermath of these dire global disruptions, streaming TV is not the first thing on local residents' minds. The anticipation of more dire weather changes to come has also prompted the programming response of apocalyptic TV series, many of which are about not trying to avert the disaster, but coping with and accommodating to its inevitability. The second major trend impinging on global audiences is the threat of global war. The disaster not only of the proxy war against Russia and the Ukraine, but also the anticipation of new global conflicts as the U.S. and NATO up the ante and now also pursuing possible simultaneous wars with China, North Korea, and Iran, all of which make more likely the possibility of nuclear war, since most of those countries have nuclear arsenals, which they are potentially willing to loose if the U.S. continues its drive for regime change in its quest to return to a unipolar world in which it dominates. With the various embargoes on these countries, and especially that on Russia, European and global consumers who now must choose between food, shelter, and energy or electricity have less left over for streaming TV. Another result of these wars is the way the closing down of these potentially lucrative markets inhibits profits, such that one factor in triggering the Netflix crisis, which started this collapse, was losing 700,000 subscribers in Russia. This points to an overall emphasis, as in the collapse of the Weimar Republic in Germany, on the heavy industries of weapons manufacture and energy, that is, oil and fracking, with a corresponding de-emphasis on light industry, communications in this instance, which thrives in open rather than closed borders. In the Germany of the late 20s, the dominance of heavy industry led to fascism.
Third, the inflation crisis is just the most recent in a series of global economic shocks that began with the collapse of the housing market bubble in the U.S. in 2007 and 8, which eventually spilled over into the European state debt crisis of 2009 to 12. COVID then exasperated what was already one of the capitalist economy's periodic recessions and which was then followed by the current inflation crisis as greedy owners coming out of the lockdown raised prices far beyond those that would cover their losses. Wages, however, stagnated, making consumers having suffered through the effects of these sequential shocks less likely to consider streaming a must. The way the U.S. tackled the problem, raising interest rates, which was then picked up by other central banks, increased the pain of those middle and working class audiences in the U.S. and beyond, who then found borrowing more difficult for the ever-accelerating costs of college, health care, and maintaining a suitable standard of living. The final factor is that as the streamers cut costs and as they homogenize product in a competition where each is afraid to distinguish themselves too much from each other, the initial creativity unleashed at the outside of streaming serial TV suffers and people lose interest because the series do not speak to their lives, but rather accelerate in a frenzy of, as the French term it, entertainment or divertissement or diversion. That is, to put it simply, the series are not as good as they used to be. All is not lost. Those serial series which, rather than ignore, responded in various ways, some of them oblique and metaphorical, to how these crises affected their audiences. The future of corporate streaming, though, is most likely one of further retrenchment, with, for example, the Comcast Universal NBC streamer Peacock and the CBS Paramount company Paramount Plus in danger of drowning as audiences tire of an endless array of ever-cheaper series whose bread and circuses are what is offered to them as all around them Rome burns. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.